Hannah, welcome to the Wellbeing and Career World podcast. I'm delighted to be chatting with leadership, cybersecurity, and organizational culture writer in Fort Worth, Texas, USA. Kyle is currently the head of security training and awareness for the Options Clearing Corporation, the world's largest equity derivatives clearing organization headquartered in Chicago, Illinois. Prior to joining OCC, Kyle was a U.S. Army combat medic in high school and a medical IT officer following university graduation. He later served as a U.S. Air Force public affairs officer during 9-11 and later as a cyberspace operations officer during the Forever War, spending over 10 years commanding the IT support organization for a combat airlift wing. Today, we'll be chatting about office culture, organizational culture, and of course, some awful boss stories and a little bit of humor along the way. And a very warm welcome. Good morning to you, Kyle Hubert. It's good afternoon to me from Ireland. So how are you getting on today? Fantastic. Thanks for the invitation to chat, David. I really appreciate it. I'm thrilled to be here. No, no, my, my pleasure. So let's get this started. So where are you right now on planet Earth and what's the weather like? So right now I'm in a little town called Bedford, just west of Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. Uh, the DFW Metroplex, if you've never been here, and I do suggest you come, uh, is essentially two core counties. Um, Tarrant County in the west, where Fort Worth is located, and Dallas County in the east, where obviously Dallas is located. And we have a bit of a different culture. Dallas is kind of a, it wants to be um, a classic East Coast big city, you know, with all right. the art and culture and nightlife. Fort Worth is more laid back, more of a more of a cow town. It's nicknamed where the West begins, and been living here for decades. I really love the area, love the culture. We are expecting some thunderstorms later today. In fact, we're expecting thunderstorms all week long because it's spring in Texas, which means tornadoes, hail, gusty winds, flash floods, rain of toads, whatever. We just kind of roll with it as it comes. <laughs> and have you ever been to the, uh, the the Johnson Space Center for NASA? Is that nearby? Down in Houston. Yeah, I've been there. Um, been to Houston a number of times, even spent some time building a dot-com down there. It's a completely different culture, but it's a neat, a neat town. All right, okay. Well, I want to ask, we're going to talk about your background, but I'm interested myself. I mean, you were you were a U.S. Air Force Public Affairs Officer. What did that involve? <laughs> <laughs> so, a little bit of background. When... I left active duty. Uh, my last assignment was I was the head of IT for Lister Army Hospital at Fort Rucker, Alabama. And I decided I'd, I'd had enough of active duty um, because I didn't get a company command slot as soon as I made captain. Back in those days, that meant that your career was pretty much permanently stalled. And luck of the draw, I happened to be on hospital staff. Uh, there were no command opportunities for my rank, and especially not where I was at the time. So I realized, you know what, I want to go back to the reserves where I started and pursue a corporate career, which had always kind of been my intention. I never intended to do like 20 years active duty. And I happened to, on the way out, was convinced by an in-service recruiter to take a reserve position at Fort Thomas, Kentucky. Uh, and it was in an Airborne Psychological Operations Battalion. Now, I'm not special forces. I have never been special forces. I could never be special forces, even in my wildest fantasies. Those folks are, are a breed apart. But this job was open to literally any commissioned officer because they were desperate to recruit for their battalion headquarters staff. And I said, sure, why not? I'll give that a go. Okay. And I showed up and I wound up becoming, I swear to God, the nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare officer for the battalion because it was the only job they had on staff that no one wanted to do. <laughs> and did you have experience? So I was, 
I did. I was actually on the NBC recon team for my battalion back at Fort Hood when I was a lieutenant. So I'd had more training than the, the normal officer gets, even though I wasn't a chemical corps officer. I at least, you know, I knew how to do maintenance on gas masks, knew how to work the radiac meters and all that. And I could teach. So that they put me in an actual coat closet full of, uh, of gas masks and gave me a couple of reams of paperwork and said, figure stuff out for us. We don't care. Yes, sir. Roger out. Uh, be, but because I was there, I had to take the PSYOP officer's course via correspondence. So I did. I took the, the, first, uh, the first correspondence version uh, from the JFK Special Warfare School, and I loved uh, the, the whole PSYOP academic side, the whole idea of using information to change people's behavior. Well, fast forward to the end of that assignment, uh, corporate-wise, I moved from Dayton, Ohio, down back home to Dallas-Fort Worth. And when I transferred down here, my the family that I'd married into, my wife's family was all Air Force going back to before World War II. In fact, her little brother, her father, and her grandfather had all served in the exact same unit at uh, Carswell Air Force Base. So as you can imagine, every holiday get-together, especially Thanksgiving dinner, was three zoomies beaten up on one grunt. <laughs> now I did my best to hold my own, but you know, inter-service rivalry is a big thing. Well, after I got back, my father-in-law said, hey, we've got a bunch of open slots out here. Rather than get out of the army entirely, why don't you come over to the blue side? I said, oh, okay. I mean, I know very little about the Air Force after World War II. Um, I, sure, why not? I mean, I like indoor plumbing and hot food. Let's give it a try. <laughs> and so I put in my application. And six months later, I got a call saying, hey, listen, um, you applied for a job with us. And I, I had completely forgotten about it by that stage. Honestly, I had forgotten I applied. I had no idea who these people were, but they said, we'd, we've never met you. We'd love you to come in for an interview. I said, huh, that's weird. I mean, the army, you don't do that. You know, the army, you're, someone shouts orders at you and you shut up and do what you're told. These people were being so conversational and pleasant and corporate. I said, okay, you know what? I, I have to do it before work because I've got a full-time job as a systems integration consultant and I need to be in downtown Dallas by nine o'clock. They said, don't worry about it. We'll come in early just for you, but we'll be here at 5.30. Just come on out. We just want to have a chat. Wow. <laughs> okay. This is weird, but I wanted to make a good impression. And I still had my uniform set up from when I was with 15th Syat Battalion threw on my dress greens, went in, found this giant, beautiful, brand new building. I mean, the, the, this, the whole unit had just moved to Carswell from the old Naval Air Station Dallas. So they had all new facilities, looked nicer than anything I'd ever been in in the Army. And there's only one light on in the entire building because you know, they haven't actually started work yet. I, I make my way up to the command suite and there's a, a young lady behind this magnificent mahogany desk, surrounded by framed paintings on beautiful, soft, plushy carpet. I thought, good God, this looks like an ambassador's office. How is this military? I mean, I was used to working out of, you know, old World War II barracks with a, a you know, beat up field desk from the Korean War. We never had budget or money for fripperies like framed paintings. She says, oh, hi, so nice to meet you. You're here for the board, aren't you? Board what board would that be? She said, oh, don't worry about it. They're ready for you. Go on in. Oh, God. Okay. Did they trick you, did they? 
No, they just weren't particularly clear in their communications, right. which is very, very much an Air Force thing. So I walked through this door and here I am, young captain in an army uniform, and I find myself in a room full of diet colonels. Sorry, uh, for the civilians. Well, we, we tend to call a lieutenant colonel a diet colonel because they've got all the pretentiousness, but none of the impact. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So there's these three lieutenant colonels all just glaring at me because they've been required to come in early. And I'm like, okay, uh, I, I'm, I'm dead in the water. This is not going to work. But you know what? I'm already here. So screw it. Damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. And the first colonel looks up at me. I, you know, of course, I do the normal Army reporting in. Snap to attention. Give a salute. Good morning. Captain Hubert reports to the board. And this woman glares at me uh, because... I didn't sit down because I'm lower rank. I was not given permission to sit down. That's not what a soldier does. But that's what the Air Force does. So I did the entire board standing. And she just looks at me dead in the eyes and says, well, what do you think qualifies you to be our public affairs officer? Like, huh. I honest to God didn't know I'd applied for that among the stuff my father-in-law had sent me. Right. So my first response was, well, shoot, you got me. I thought, you know what? Let's do this. I like to look at what have I got for a prop? So this is, I mean, uh, an interview board is performance art more than anything else. I'm like, hmm, okay, they, 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 ah, this. And I tapped my left shoulder and said, man, I'd say it would be this patch right here on my left shoulder. You see the insignia of U.S. Army Civil Affairs and Psychological Operations Command represents the use of the truth itself as a weapon system. That is a weapon system I am fully proficient with and am willing to bring to bear to solve your organizational problems. <laughs> well. And next thing I know, they're writing that garbage down. <laughs> Wait a minute, come on. We all know here I'm making this up. I'm improvising because I'm desperate and I'm completely unprepared. They're like, oh, wow, that's great. Okay. Like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? And the rest of the board went that way. Next thing I know, nine months later, I'm actually brought on board as the PAO because they figured Two things. One, I'd done phase one of the PSYOP officers course, which I guess in military circles somehow PSYOP and PA, even though they're, they're both part of information warfare, were considered close enough to be considered trained, at least to these folks, and the fact that I could think on my feet when under pressure. So I get into the role, and not long after I get sent to the actual uh, PA officers course at Fort Meade, and I met the rest of the, uh, the Texas Army Guards uh, PAOs. We were great friends. We got along great, learned the doctrine, came back. I thought, okay, you know, one weekend a month, I'm going to be essentially doing some minor press releases, doing some media work. Um, and then out of the blue, 9-11 happened. Caught everyone by surprise. And of course, you know, we had our military police were activated to deploy overseas and a bunch of other things. So I got to help doing their, their you know, pre-deployment media briefs. Also, all civilian aviation shut down in the yeah. U.S. And you know, we had an entire military public affairs detachment at Army Guard headquarters in Austin. And they said, don't worry. Don't worry, Adjutant General. We've got this. We can go anywhere, do anything. We got this covered. That lasted until that afternoon when um, a Dallas-based news agency called up state headquarters and said, hey, guys, we'd like to do a live interview at five to talk about you know, stuff. He said, don't worry, we've got it covered. They said, great, so you can be in Dallas at five. They're like, that's a four-hour drive, and it's four in the afternoon. I, we, we can't teleport. 
<laughs> Not yet. So my buddy from, from state headquarters called me up on my personal mobile, said, hey, Bubba, I need to ask a favor. Like, yeah, dude, anything. What do you want? He goes, I kind of need you to cover for me. We've got a live interview to do. Like, oh, all right. I mean, that is what we trained for, sure. Next thing I know, I get put on orders and I'm covering basically all of the airport security mission all across North Texas. And anytime uh, a reporter, you know, whether it was you know, newspaper, radio, television, had a question or a concern or wanted to do an interview or get some B-roll or whatever, uh, I had to race out to whatever airport or facility they were at, take care of them, you know, give them the video, give them the quote, dig up information for them, and essentially act as a Texas military forces representative um, as one of only two Air Force guys in what was otherwise an all-Army mission where you know, we sent volunteers in to help provide additional security to the airports. And that became the entirety of my job for the next year. It was bizarre. It was a weird 24-hour-a-day kind of role. But it taught me a ton about not just improvisation, but also how to do right by the people that are depending on you for credible, true information. So that's the rule about public affairs, right? You can never lie. You always tell the truth. You always tell it immediately. You are completely transparent at all times. And you do your best to help get the public the information that they need and want as quickly, efficiently, and as courteously as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Which kind of cross applies to everything you do in kind of every leadership job ever. Can, can Kyle, the, the, the truth, can it be modified not to scare people, but still be a certain amount of truth? Or is that, is that a no? No, you are allowed to explain things in terms that are easier for people to understand. You can't lie. You can't misdirect. You, you certainly can't even lie by omission. However, you know, this was something that happened a lot. Um, good example of this is we used to get, you know, after the anthrax attacks that happened early on post 9-11, we would constantly get police calls for a suspicious white powder discovered someplace around the airports. Now, it was almost always uh, talcum powder from a baby changing station in a public restroom, which is 100% normal. But... Anytime people saw suspicious white powder, because that is what was constantly referred to on news reports about deadly terrorist attacks with bioweapons, people would freak out, and rightly so. Yeah. So I'd go on you know, TV or radio or whatever, and I explained it. No, this was, you know, this was a changing table. Obviously, a baby was being changed. We tested. It's innocuous. It's baby powder. It's no big deal. And the thing is, we, we know this is a little scary, but we really appreciate the public's help in spotting things that are unusual. Um, you know, don't stop calling that stuff in. You don't need to be terrified of it, but you do need to be attentive. And that's great because that keeps us all safe. And that method of, of explaining it really worked well because for two years after that mission, I would have complete strangers walking up to me in like the grocery store or some other public place saying, hey, I remember you. You were that guy on TV who really set my mind at ease. I said, well, yeah, that, that's my job, right? I want to keep you fully informed but I also want to make sure that you're not getting any more anxious than you absolutely have to be to keep yourself safe. Is it Kyle? I mean, you mentioned it before with regards to um, you can think on your feet, like under pressure. Do you think that's, are you born with that or is that trained into you? 
mostly trained, to be honest. I learned a lot of it, honestly, from musical theater. Um, I did. I was part of a traveling musical theater troupe um, in elementary, junior high, and the beginning of high school. Just a summer thing that we do. And what I discovered, you know, part of learning stage presence and having to work for an audience, is constantly perceiving your audience and how they're responding to you, and then changing your approach. Everything, tone, pitch, body language, positioning, volume, to make sure you're getting the right effect with the people that you're you're performing for. And I discovered that it's kind of the same thing when you're performing, um, say, in front of the camera. Uh, it's about half preparation. Like you actually have to know your material ahead of time. You definitely should practice your most important answers, kind of like I did for this interview. I went through all of the questions I thought you might ask and came up with the, the stories and examples and practiced delivering them so that I'd be ready for you no matter what you asked. But the other half of it is that sense of confidence knowing, all right, I know my audience. I know what I need to say. I know how I need to say it. Now let's just calm down, pay attention to the audience and tell them what I want to tell them in such a way that they're going to understand what I'm saying. Right. Okay. What then, this is an interesting thing now. So cyberspace operations officer, can you <laughs> explain cyberspace for dummies? So pretty much me. Not, not the listeners, but pretty much me. What are we talking about here with regards to cyberspace? Okay, so cyberspace, as coined by William Gibson, has become more of a marketing term than anything else because it sounds awesome. Okay. And it does. <laughs> it's, a, it's a running joke. We used to be called, well, in the Army, we were called signals officers. In the Air Force, it was communications and information. But then they decided when they changed us from a support, what's called a support domain to a warfighting domain, the idea was to give it a sexier name. Now we were cyberspace operators, right? which again, sounds fantastic, it does. but our actual <laughs> duties didn't change. Now, the whole idea is it's part of the, the, the joint forces information operations spectrum, which is basically from the, the time an idea is created until the time it is completely obsolete. What are all the different ways that information can be used uh, and can be acted against? So that includes you know, public affairs, psychological operations, computer operations, electromagnetic uh, operations, kinetic effects, like blowing up a TV transmitter, operations security to prevent unclassified information from getting out to people that can figure things out from it. It's, it's fantastic doctrine. And of course, I'm fascinated by it professionally the cyberspace part usually refers to what now we'd consider enterprise IT. So right. all of the information systems used to turn information into work. How then do you become a cyberspace operations officer? So say, for example, uh, Dave, Dave goes to, mm -hmm. uh, goes, through uh, goes through high school, approaches college. What skills do I need? or background do I need to become a cyberspace operations officer? Or is it specific just to Air Force or military background? Well, each branch has their own version of it, right? Like, like you know, the Army has the Signal Corps, Air Force has uh, cyberspace ops, has its own Air Force specialty code. I have no doubt that the Marines and the, uh, the Navy have their own versions. These days, you need an actual degree in IT or some type of engineering related to IT. 
at the time that I got in, I had already been uh, in the Army, it was called a, a Military Occupational Specialty 70 Delta, a Biomedical Information Systems Officer. Now, this was as of like 1995, so God only knows what the title has changed to by now. But the idea was I was a professional military IT person. And I'd also been a systems integration consultant for KPMG Consulting on the outside doing large IT projects. So when I applied for the open, what was then considered the communications unit commander position at my unit uh, to get out of PAO and, and do something that, um, that paid better, um, I was considered minimally qualified, essentially by having a sister services equivalent um, professional role. Now, I don't think they would do that anymore. It's gotten uh, a lot tighter since a lot more people want into the field. And of course, the military is constantly changing its rules for qualification. But if someone wanted to get into it, what I'd recommend is getting an actual IT focused degree. Um, IT engineering, like getting into a professional cybersecurity role or you know, like learning you know, sims and firewalls and whatnot could definitely be good. Computer engineering could work. Even I've heard some developers like getting a computer science and programming degree would help. The other thing is then to get into the military. If you can do it through like say ROTC, leverage your degree and hopefully get commissioned into the branch of your choice, that might work. Or go and enlisted and get uh, an enlisted cyber AFSC or MOS or Navy rating and then see about going Mustang, buck for officer through an officer's candidacy school slot if the opportunity comes up. A lot of ways to do it. And as I said, it's constantly changing. So what I tell you today might not be true in a couple of years. Maybe next year you have to bring back the golden fleece or something. Right. <laughs> Keep your skills updated. Okay, this, this is flavor of the month now. So this 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 is a question that uh, is kind of off topic, but I'm 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 going to ask you this anyway. So as a former U.S. Air Force public affairs officer, is there aliens and is there UFOs? <laughs> <laughs> well, according to that sixty minutes article, there definitely are unidentified flying objects. Right. Break, break, new paragraph. Um, the idea that this definitely means there are aliens seems a little far-fetched. Right. Uh, I can tell you that we actually would get probably like twice a year calls uh, to my office as the PAO out at Carswell uh, trying to get us to confirm the existence of aliens right. or just reporting a UFO sighting. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I, can't, I, I cannot tell you that that's true because I have zero information on that subject. <laughs> which is an entirely true statement. But when, when people would call with a UFO sighting, we would very dutifully take down their information, pass it to the command post, and I have no idea on earth what happened to it after that. All right. Honestly, most of those people that called in were very polite, even a little sheepish. They were kind of embarrassed, right. but they saw something they didn't understand and they wanted to share it with the authorities. It, it, it is amazing. It's kind of like um, I'm fascinated by this, by this subject of of uh, ufos especially now there's a lot more heated topic i think uh, president obama made he was on an interview there recently and he mentioned that you know there is there's something but we can't confirm what they are who they are or whether they're a higher technology or so i just thought i'd, I'd get that question in especially because <laughs> this is your this is your previous career so try to get a truthful answer from you kyle he absolutely did. I mean, I've never, <laughs> never seen anything even close to any kind of evidence to suggest that there's extraterrestrial life. Doesn't mean there isn't, just means I'm not aware of it. 
Keep in mind, though, this whole idea of UFOs, this could be anything from drones to private aircraft to rocketry to sensor ghosts to, you know, pilot error misidentification, equipment failure. There's a whole bunch of potential answers for every given encounter. And if you really want to find, you get into the truth behind it, you've got to go into it with an open mind. Don't let your biases skew your judgment and eliminate every reasonable possibility until you, you know, you narrow it down to a few remaining answers. So what, and I'm sh- what do you think, Kyle? If you, if you put aside all the, 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 the public affairs officer, what, what would you think? What, what's your opinion? My personal opinion? Yeah. I kind of doubt that it's aliens. I mean, if That's they have the technology to come all this way, <laughs> they'd have the ability to like scan our airwaves, look to see what's going on. And honestly, two or three encounters with Florida, man, they'd probably decide, you know what, we're going to come back in a, in a millennia or so. This place is a little bit weird. <laughs> That's a good answer. Okay, Toby, we'll move on then to uh, the main topics of our chat today. So what is office culture, and organizational culture? And don't hold back. Oh, no worries. So there are two different things, right? Organizational culture is primarily aspirational and mostly fictitious. The whole idea is that an organization says, this is who we are, right? They're making a a declarative statement. And a good example of this, and I I pulled this from a a January 2002 article from the New York Times, Enron's official um, corporate values, they actually had a statement that said, we are a global corporate citizen. Enron intends to conduct itself in accord with four capital V values, respect, integrity, communication, and excellence. Now, if you're not familiar, Enron was a bit of a dumpster fire of a company. Um, They lied their tails off. They were conducting massive fraud. Their business model was a complete joke, and the company collapsed, and a bunch of people went to jail for it. So how do you square that with what they said was their their official corporate values, their, their culture of excellence and integrity. Well, that's the thing is, in organizational culture, honestly, once you get beyond three levels of supervision in any organization, you no longer have a true organizational culture. Now, and the reason is there's, there is a separation um, in abstraction. Every time you go up a tier, right? Remember, information is always filtered and it's affected by biases. So let's say that I'm your employee and you ask me for a status report. I'm going to give you my honest answer. You know, yes, David, I don't think it was aliens. And you think, all right, you know what? I get it. He's telling me the truth. But when I pass that to my boss, I'm going to put a little spin on it. Right. Yeah, he said there weren't aliens, but maybe there are. And then your boss says, okay, well, he didn't deny that there's aliens, so they probably exist. And it goes to the next boss and so on. Kind of like the old telephone game. This right. is why the whole idea behind an organizational culture as being something the company either wants to believe about itself, and it may be completely honest, right? I've, I've been in a lot of companies where the senior leaders have said, in all earnestness, we intend to be a culture with high integrity. And I can respect that. And I want to conform to that. That's something I want too. The problem is every time you have a change in the authority level, messages get garbled. And your true organizational culture is based on what leadership consistently enforces. So it's one thing to say, you know, we believe in a culture of integrity, or we believe in transparency, or we believe in customer service. But all of your people down on the line, the actual workers who are getting things done, they are 
always watching like hawks. And they see when someone violates a regulation or a policy or a corporate value, they want to know what happens. And when someone violates a standard, a norm, a rule, and is either not punished or not corrected, or even worse, is promoted for what they did, then what that tells the, the workers is, ah, that value, that rule, that cultural imperative is a lie. The reality is you get rewarded for violating it. Therefore, the exact opposite of what is said by upper management is true. And this is something that as a policy writer, I've been talking about, uh, well, for decades. In any time, anytime you're gonna write a policy or regulation, never write a rule, never make a rule that you are not committed to enforcing. If you're gonna be wishy-washy about it or you're gonna give people um, a casual opportunity to violate it, it should not be a rule because having it there and having it enforced arbitrarily or haphazardly is gonna cause more harm than good because people will see you as non-credible. And once they believe that the, that, well, the company's leadership isn't credible about what they say, they're gonna apply that to everything that leadership says. Now, let's back out for a second and talk about office culture, right? Office culture is the natural byproduct of people coming together under any shared temporary group identity. So whether that's you know, us together in this podcast or whether that's people coming together in say, I don't know, the, the pastry division of 123 Corp. Whatever it is, you have a temporary group identity of people coming together to share time and achieve things together that requires some level of cooperation and conflict. And it is inevitably going to create its own unique language, customs, expectations, shared history. This idea of who we as a group are, what we value, what we will allow, what we will not allow. And of course, it's constantly changing, right? Because as, as you have churn, as new people come in and old people leave, that puts pressure on that shared group identity, that, that consensus-driven uh, group ID to change in new directions and evolve. So a lot of times when I'm talking about organizational culture, I'm talking within, essentially within the span of just a few tiers of management, usually in a particular location. A group ID that is strong enough that people say, you know, when you ask them who they are, what they belong to, they say, yes, I'm a member of uh, company 123's developer group, or I'm a member of the Milwaukee office or whatever. People rarely actually identify with a corporate entity, especially when you've got like a thousand or more people or you know, God help you, a Fortune 500 company that has international reach they're far more likely to think of themselves as, oh, well, I'm part of the French branch, or I'm part of the Australian branch, or I'm in the IT department, or I'm on the help desk. Because your effective office culture really comes down to those people that, can, that will consistently directly interact through the course of a normal workday. That making sense? Yeah. Oh, no, without a doubt. So what about then, I mean, is a lot of the branding that we see associated with organizational culture then is it is it all pretend i'm not saying it's all pretend but you now we you mentioned in regards to you know uh enron mentioned like you know integrity respect and but the the what what the public see is very different so is branding is it just kind of trying to give people a feel is that this is who we are what we are but is it is it real well let's face it most brands are entirely artificial right mm -hmm. they're 
they're not based on what the company is or has done. They're based on what the company wants you to believe it is. And therefore, you're going to have a strong emotional reaction to the brand, maybe have some loyalty to it and prefer that brand over other brands. It is emotional manipulation or marketing, which is basically the same thing. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but the whole idea of companies talking about you know, who they are, basically making declarative statements, this is who we are, this is what we believe, you should trust us for these reasons. This has been getting a ton of chatter on social media, especially Twitter. That's where I spend most of my, my time on social media these days. And like it's LGBTQ Pride Month in the United, in the, uh, United States. Kind of a big deal in June. And company after company has been doing things like changing their logo or changing a different background for their branding or trying to say that, hey, we are an ally. We believe in equality and fairness for all people, regardless of, of sexual preference or gender identity. Or it's like, okay, that's great. That is a fantastic progressive position to take. And that's what you should be doing, right? You should be appealing not just to the widest range of customers, but to the widest range of potential talent. Because we know that a more diverse work group is going to come up with more creative and sustainable solutions and have higher morale, especially in an environment of mutual trust and respect. Yeah. Okay, got it. Love it. That's a great aspirational statement. But now let's look at your actual history, ABC Corp. You know, do you have a history of discriminating, say, against women? Do you have a glass ceiling? Are you like not allowing um, people of color to actually move up into leadership positions? Do you have a history of discriminating against, say, uh, pregnant employees or against uh, um, gay people? Worse, have you been giving money to causes and politicians that are actively calling for discrimination against these people? It's, it's like the process of trying to wrap yourself in the, just put, putting a flag around your shoulders like a cape and saying that you're a patriot. It's costuming, but it's not necessarily true. Now, I'm not saying that this is false for every company out there. Quite the contrary, there's a lot of great organizations that are actually doing fantastic work when it comes to diversity and inclusion. So for them, their statements about what they're doing during Pride Month are largely true and should be commended and respected for it. But far too many, it is an empty claim meant to appeal in the short term for people that don't know any better about who and what they really are. How then, Kyle, taking that example that you just mentioned, how then if I'm looking for a new career or joining an organization or one of the listeners is looking to join a new organization, how then do you educate yourself to find what the truth is in that organization? What can you do? My favorite open source intelligence, that or calling upon your, your um, friend's network. What I've found, every place I've been, I've always tried to, before the interview, talk to someone that either currently works there or used to work there. And I'll buy them a pint or three, and I want to get their <laughs> unfiltered opinion. What do you believe about it? So for example, before I came to my current employer, I had actually helped one of my former airmen get a job there in the security department. And you know, before I came out to interview, I asked him, what did you think about it? And of course, I got his opinion and I filtered it because I knew his biases and, and what he was going to tell me was going to be a little bit self-serving and it was going to be, it would reflect his values, not necessarily mine, but I still needed the feedback to be able to understand, okay, from knowing his perspective of what it was like when he worked for me, knowing how he viewed this organization, I can kind of get a frame of reference on it. 
I did the same thing. I would find people that work there, be very upfront about what I want, right? You don't want to appear like a social engineer and trick people into giving things away because it's going to ruin your credibility to say, listen, I'm John Smith. I'm looking to apply at ABC Corp. Uh, I know you've been there, according to your LinkedIn profile, you've been there five years. Would you be willing just to share some completely unclassified, safe information about what you feel the culture is like? If you can't do that before the interview, which I completely understand, it's sometimes hard to get people to talk with you, make it a point to ask it in the interview. A lot of times, the standard interview script that untrained people will do, what will present to a candidate, hey, before we start, do you have any questions? And I always prefer to go for the throat. Yes, I absolutely do. Before we start asking questions, I want you to tell me about why you chose to join this company and why you chose to stay. What is it about this place that makes you want to be here every day? And I like to hear that from all the, bo- the hiring board members. Wow, that's a good question. <laughs> I, bet you, I bet you that puts them on the spot. Oh, it does. There's a little dirty trick to that, right? My first book, Why Are You Here, was all about interviewing from both sides of the table. And that's one of the things I recommended. You're not trying to be disruptive, but you are trying to seize the initiative to catch people a little off guard so they're more likely to give you an honest, raw, unfiltered answer. And I especially like to essentially break the, um, the expectation of okay, we're the hiring board. We are in a position of power. We're going to tell you how this is going to go and say, well, no. Um, you are potentially my peers, your people that I might be friends with when I come on here. We both have some power in this relationship and I would like to get some truth out of you just as you want to get some truth out of me. Let's make this more conversational. And if you're not willing to do that now when you're trying, basically we're in the dating phase, you're trying to woo me. If you're not willing to do that now, how are you going to treat me when I'm actually on board and you no longer have to work at the relationship? What about then say an organization has certain goals and values and you as a employee have seen that there's a certain level of um, non-compliance of these values between some of the staff and it may lead to say a risk concern or a safety concern or a security concern how can you speak up in an organization without kind of being targeted Oh, sure. Retaliation is always a potential consequence of speaking up. Now, of course, it depends on office culture, right? Um, Depending on the organization, your management chain may be fully in support of you calling attention to a problem, um, or they may not. They they may be more afraid of embarrassment or afraid of something getting documented that could stymie someone's career progress. This is where I like to get to know my supervisor. And I The approach I tend to take with the people I work for is, number one, I'm always going to tell them the truth. I am going to, first off, they never wait on me. They tell me something needs to be done. It gets done immediately. I want my boss to be so confident that I am trustworthy and dependable that they can afford to turn their back on me and go spend all of their time dealing with their problem children. And I do that by maintaining ironclad personal integrity, at least as best as I can do, and constantly up-channeling information and is trying to make sure we have a very professional rapport based on respect. So that when I come to them and say, hey, listen, I have seen something that concerns me. I think this is a problem. They're gonna listen and believe me when I say it, they're gonna trust me that I have the evidence and then they're gonna act on it. Maybe take it up the chain, go into the you know, inspector general or whatever their equivalent is in the organization. 
I also like to make friends in other departments. I want to know who the reporting agencies are. A lot of companies have like anonymous uh, reporting lines or ethics complaint lines or, or just other ways to call things in. And as a security awareness person, this is something that I've been advocating for my peers in our, our industry niche is the security awareness group should be the equivalent of the ambassadorial core for the security department. The idea that people throughout the entire organization should always feel safe coming to talk with us about anything that bothers them. If it's a concern about a coworker, about a process, about a technical control, anything. We are neutral, we're non-judgmental, we are never gonna get them in trouble. If we don't have an answer, we're gonna find it for them or make the appropriate introductions or arrangements, whatever it takes. But they should always have a way to talk to someone who is guaranteed to listen without any kind of reprisal or feedback, negative feedback, I should say. And in turn, we then up-channel, and if a person wants to be anonymous, we can support that too. I think that's one of the best ways to make security awareness function credible to the line workers. And it also means there's always an outlet for reporting that at least someone is going to find out about a potential problem in time enough to take some kind of appropriate action on it. And of course, I, you know, I say that security awareness. I think that probably every organization should have multiple groups that do what we do. There should probably some be someone in whatever their internal affairs function is, whether it's you know, compliance or regulatory, whatever. Uh, probably also in human resources, probably also in every major function, someone that you can go to without any sense, uh, without any worry of reprisal or, um, or exposure, right? If you need to make an anonymous complaint, just to encourage people to let the organization know when there's a problem. Now, of course, not all organizations do this and some actively resist it, but I strongly recommend it as one of the most important things you can do because if people don't trust their leadership to take bad news well, then they're not gonna report the things that they know and really bad things are gonna get out of control when they could have been solved very quickly very cost effectively and very early on with just a warning in the right ear. Yeah. So it's actually for productivity and, and for the sake of the company, it's probably best, as you mentioned before, that they do have certain systems in place where, where individuals can actually report. So what about then how factual? So in your own opinion, Kyle, how factual do you think we see these social media platforms? I'm not going to mention where company employees who maybe 10 or 15 years are saying, you know, I'm, I'm with, organization ABC for the last 10 years. It's amazing. They do this, they do that. And then you see another post where it might say, I'm with organization ABC and they they um, they gave me a, a raise today. I mean, how, how factual, in your own opinion, are those type of posts or is it another form of organizational kind of branding or promoting? Do you think? It's a little of both. We right. call it the glass door effect. Uh, after glassdoor.com, at least we do down here in Texas. And it's pretty much everyone I know tends to treat those reviews as really suspicious. The general consensus is that there's two types of people that will post about a company to a, to a social media site like that. So when you're doing research on ABC Corp, who, who's actually going to take all that time and trouble to write about it? Well, you got the company itself who's going to put together a stock puppet account to go in and leave glowing reviews about how great everything is. So yeah. When you read a review that says 
this is the best place to work ever. Everyone believes in our company values. I never have a bad day. I've never even cried before in my life. Life is glorious. <laughs> Apply here. Right. You know darn well that was a human resources intern who was told, make us look good and bring up our average. Then you've got the disgruntled current and former employees who are trying to do everything they can to hurt the company, to try and get some sort of revenge for whatever slight they feel, real or imagined. This is the worst company ever. The whole break room is filled with radioactive toxic sludge, and they let flesh-eating weasels loose in the cubicle farm. One and a half stars. Okay, no, come on. The truth is almost always far more nuanced, far more localized. And that's why I like to talk to actual people, especially people who are actually in the organization. Like, look, be perfectly honest. Tell me the best thing about working here, the worst thing about working here, the most annoying thing about working here, and what is something that you would change if only you were given ultimate absolute power over the company for one day? And when you get someone who like is, all right, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you what I feel about it. You're far more likely to get a more balanced, nuanced, and a lot of times, um, a, a detailed view of what it's like inside the company, at least according to that person's perspective. Right. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense. It's, it's kind of, it's, it is interesting. A lot of people have actually said to me, they, the more they see stuff on social media, the more suspicious they are getting and they find themselves, they have to educate themselves to actually find what's real and what's not. And a prime example of that was recent where uh, airline was we'll say airline ABC had announced a couple of months ago that they were taking delivery of a certain aircraft ABC and they were so excited to receive aircraft ABC. And then a couple of days ago, uh, airline ABC mentioned that aircraft ABC wasn't fully approved by uh, aviation authority ABC. So it's kind of like, it's, it's like, you know, you're reading something like, I, I thought a few months ago they said it was approved by the authority and are getting delivery. And now three months later, it's not approved and they're going to delay delivery. So it's very hard to know. And that's why a lot of, a lot of uh, messages is like, you know, how, how do you find out what's real and, and what's false? But then we move on to another area, which is office politics. So what is office yeah. politics? It's a lot like backstabbing. <laughs> is it like rumors? Is it like he said, she said type of stuff? And, and how do you survive it? So there's an old joke in IT circles. Um, if you, yeah, and I have no idea what your IT background is. Have you ever heard of the open systems interconnect model? No. <laughs> okay. Basic, basic. So it, it's, <laughs> it's an academic model for how a computer um, talks to another computer, basically how software or systems are going to talk to one another. It's basically seven tiers from the actual physical cable that electricity goes down all the way up to the, um, the, the final layer of the application itself and how it works with information. The whole idea is that each layer provides a service to the one above and below it. So for example, if you don't have a physical cable plugged in between say two network switches, then you're never gonna get a signal across. It doesn't matter if the software is working, you can't physically get from here to there. So, and again, this is all academic. Well, the joke is this is a seven layer idea for making protocol stacks for network communications. So we'll, we tend to ask in job interviews, Okay, kids, so you know, what are the two most important layers on the, the OSI model? And of course, people will think, okay, wait a minute, is it network? Is it transport? Is it protocol? Is it application? And we'll let them generally founder for a bit. People who've been in the industry for a long time will answer, oh, well, yeah, on the seven-layer OSI model, 
it's layers eight and nine. That is the political and the religious layer. And that's the right answer, right? The idea yeah. that technology decisions and technology operations rarely have anything to do with the technology itself. It's all about human beliefs and actions that are completely divorced from the actual real world environment. Right. You know, a good example of this is for a long time, we had a bunch of uh, Apple branded, uh, well, Apple Macintoshes in our visual information lab um, out of, in the, the communications unit I was in the military. Well, the Air Force had said, you're not allowed to use those on our network. We said, okay, well, we'll do all the tests and we'll get them approved for Air Force wide use. And we did. But we eventually wound up getting a vice wing commander who had a really skewed idea. Uh, he, he decided that because he had heard that Apple Inc. supports LGBTQ rights, therefore it's a gay computer. And you couldn't well, have gay things in the military. So he made the decision that we had to get rid of, even though they were fully approved by Department of the Air Force and were properly managed and patched and controlled and monitored and everything was dress right dress according to military regulations, because of his irrational belief, he ordered us to get rid of $50,000 worth of production equipment because of his fear of an aspect of the brand that didn't actually exist. Well, that's the political layer. Politics is primarily about how people interact with one another in order to gain, either to gain an advantage or to mitigate a disadvantage by leveraging relationships, creating opportunities, um, and essentially, it's power dynamics more than anything else. And this is something I actually like to teach new interns and new hires, right? Lots of decisions are not based on operational necessity or real world factors like, can we afford it? Do we have the parts? Is it the right business decision? No, it's based on alliances. Well, yeah, this is not the right technology for us. But if I support this project publicly, then this director in another division is going to owe me a favor. And I'm going to need that favor later to get my project implemented and so on. Um, now, you can look upon office politics, just like you could in any organization, as something just reprehensible. My goodness, why should we let these, these petty concerns about sharing and using power get in the way of making completely rational and logical decisions? Like, yeah, because there are people involved, right? Yeah. In any given organization, there is usually a limited amount of power to go, to go around, right? You have some from your position in the hierarchy, some that's been delegated for higher authority, and some by virtue of your expertise or unique position. But at all times, trying to get your job done brings you into conflict with people trying to get their job done. And the classic example of this is the, the difference in opinions between, say, operations and security. Operations wants to go full bore ahead, damn the torpedoes. Security wants to be as hesitant and conservative as possible to avoid creating a breach. Well, obviously, those are incompatible positions. Well, the dynamic tension between those two groups is what allows upper management to make a fully informed and reasonable decision based upon their risk tolerance, right? Each side argues its position logically and rationally, and the answer is found somewhere in the middle based upon the totality of circumstances. Sometimes though, you know, the, the conflict between different power centers is based on personality, old grudges, complete misunderstandings, irrational behavior, but it's always people 
putting themselves and their personal agendas and their worldview in opposition to other people, regardless of what the actual business need or operational conditions are. And this is normal. We do this everywhere from a church sewing circle up to a Fortune 500 boardroom. Heck, we did it in the military too. This is <laughs> how people act, right? Yeah. Because it is effectively impossible for people to envision, you know, like imagine working for Walmart and there's like 100,000 employees. It's a megacorp that spans many countries and goes through trillions of dollars a year. That's too much for the human mind to really, to really grasp. So you, remember we talked about earlier, you latch onto your office culture, yeah. your office, your facility, your function, whatever. And then that automatically makes everyone in your group part of us. And everyone else in the company becomes them, a rival. Because that's how humans are conditioned, right? We're a tribal social species. And we're accustomed to groups of about 50 people. And anything beyond that gets too big to really understand intellectually or emotionally. And so we subdivide it. You, you can even see it like, well, yes, I'm part of the, the Milwaukee office, but we're the eighth floor. And we don't like those guys on the ninth floor. There are, there are rivals. And it's just how people act. Now, can you get away from it? Um, I argue no. That's kind of like saying, I'm going to go swimming, but I don't want to be subject to the rules of buoyancy or needing <laughs> oxygen to breathe, right? Yeah. If you're in the pool, I'm sorry, but you're swimming. You can deny it. You can dislike it. It doesn't really matter. Your choices are learn to swim, get out of the pool, or drown. Pick one and enjoy the results. So now, it's really... Can... No, go ahead, Carl. I just wondered, I mean, is there any other way of managing that? I mean, say, for example, you love the job. Say you really, really love the job and you've, this is your passion and your dream. But unfortunately, the, the environment that you're in or the office politics you're, you're, you're part of um, is affecting you on a personal level. Is there any way of managing that? Is it, or is it just a case of just have a, you know, have a, have a thick skin and, and get on with it? No, I think it's definitely manageable. So the first thing you got to realize is that you're actually playing whether you like it or not. The fact that you joined a group means you're now involved in the group's politics. Now, if you don't like the way it's being played, well, that's fine. Uh, work to change it, right? Try to actually influence your office culture to be more open, more collaborative, to be to let go of old grudges, try to forge new relationships. Do what you can to influence things to become less confrontational and certainly less heated. Um, being able to convince people that we actually do have mutual interests and we have more in common than we have differences will go a long ways towards uh, trying to establish a more peaceful relationship. Beyond that, also be able to separate personal grudges and perceptions from group grudges and perceptions. Like, okay, sure, maybe the help desk burned us on a project three years ago. Well, most of those people are gone now. Let's, we're not going to dismiss that the, the reasons for being angry entirely, but we do need to set them aside long enough to try and create a new relationship with this new help desk that is absolutely not the old one. Also, understand who you are, what your personal limits are. Uh, a great book on this, by the way, it's very tongue-in-cheek, but Blaine Pardo's Cubicle Warfare. It's out of print, but you can still find copies on like eBay and, and used bookshops. I use it as a textbook. It's a very tongue-in-cheek way of figuring out where do you actually fall? What, how much are you willing to do 
both to protect yourself and to seize an advantage. Are you willing to, you know, to get someone fired? Are you willing to lie on the course of your duties? Where does the red line fall for you? You got to know yourself first before you can start judging other people, figuring out where the red lines fall for them and figuring out what the actual limits of your conflict really are. Of course, I do recommend, right? Don't go for cutthroat, backstabbing kind of behavior in the office because that creates more enemies than it gives you advantages. That's the kind of thing that psychopaths and narcissists do. Instead, try to conduct yourself with personal integrity. Try to build a group that's known for credibility and restraint and professionalism and try to make more alliances than you make enemies. Would you then, if you're going to stick around, I mean, is it best to say just to take the money and smile and, and get on with it then if that's the case? Is money more, in your own opinion, is money better than your happiness or more important than your happiness? Or is it just depending on the individual themselves? Okay, so bear in mind, I am an American, right? Okay. <laughs> we don't really have a social... No, seriously, we don't have... Okay, yes, you could say, yes, we're, we're, we're not nearly as smart as the European. I've heard oh, that no, no, we, we, we my, love the American. my UK friends. <laughs> but now, realistically, you got to look at the way our culture is set up, right? We don't have a strong social safety net. Um, if we want health care, we have to pay for it. Yeah. And to do that, you need to have health insurance. Where do most people get their health insurance? Through their employer. Right. In fact, frankly, most people here, you work to live. You're not doing it out of joy or to pursue your passion. You're doing it because it's that or die. Right. So we, most people, let me give you a good example of this. When we were teaching people in, in my work group at Verizon how to interview, how to be on an interview board, we interviewed a fellow and we asked him, you know, what, what motivates you to do your best work? And the man was very honest. He said, you know what? I have a wife, I have a kid right now, and I have another kid on the way. I need to keep them in a house, I need to feed them, and I need to make sure they have health care. Just being able to come to work knowing I'm going to get a paycheck and company benefits, that motivates me to do my best work and be a great team player. I said, all right, I completely understand that. Well, one of the young ladies that was on our interview board, she was incensed by that. Once the candidate left, she said, I am disgusted. Why would you work for something as crude and, and ungentlemanly as money? You should work for the love of the job. We said, okay, that's a very interesting take. We, we talked it out as a group and come to find out this young woman was rich. She had always been rich. Her husband worked, was making the equivalent of 300,000 pounds a year. Right. And she, the only reason she worked was to have her own identity as a working professional, not as her husband's spouse, which for her made perfect sense. I respected her for it, but we helped her understand your worldview, your situation does not apply to 90% of the people coming through this door. We work out of desperation, not for self-actualization and personal fulfillment. And if you are judging people negatively for that, that is a, that's a black mark on you, not on them. Right. You need to respect people where they actually are. And that's the thing is, most people have to endure a terrible job, especially in a tight labor market. You know, it, it would be one thing if it were a candidate's market right now, where you could say, you know what, this job is not giving me everything I want. I'll just resign and get a new job at higher pay and better conditions in a week. There have been times in the American economy where that's happened. That's not really happening right now. 
So most people, it's not a matter of would I like to just quit to have better working conditions. It's can I afford to? And especially in the United States, if you're out of work for more than six months, there is a mistaken view that there is something fundamentally wrong with you that you are unhirable or defective. So the, what, what career counselors tell us is that if you don't already have your next job lined up, suck it up, endure, take the beating and don't quit until you can guarantee a safe escape. Now that's terrible for people's mental and emotional health, yeah. but it may be the only thing that saves them financially from utter ruin. We don't have the best system. What about then if, if you know, an, an individual has been trying to get a job and as you mentioned, like the six months has passed and they've tried and they've really pushed hard to get a, a job, what can you suggest they can do then? I mean, just, you know, keep banging on the door, just keep trying, especially if they need the work. Well, I mean, you have to, right? You don't really have a choice. You're, if you're even eligible for unemployment, it's going to run out very quickly and it will never pay enough to, to keep you um, unless you are on the very, very lowest lung, rung of the economic ladder. It's not going to be enough to cover your expenses. So you're going to burn through your reserves. You might start burning through your retirement savings, putting yourself in a terrible financial position. You're going to take whatever job you can get which may mean moving to a lower um, authority level, like you know, having to drop from a director down to a manager or a manager to an individual contributor. You might have to take a lower salary or a worse benefits package. It's extremely rough and it is incredibly degrading. Right. Now, one way you can mitigate that, right? One is you build your, your social networks and you leverage them. Let's face it, most hiring comes because you know someone on the inside, someone that's willing to vouch for you and make sure that HR will actually put your resume forward for an interview rather than just screening you out with the other thousand applicants on completely arbitrary criteria. Use those networks, use the heck out of them. Build your own personal brand. You know, I actually spent the time after I retired from the military, I spent a good eight months um, applying for work and interviewing, obviously, but I also spent the time writing my first book and getting it to market because I really had a lot of things I wanted to share with people. And I thought now's the perfect time to do it. I would spend all morning applying for jobs and all afternoon and evening working on the book until it was finally done and published. And when people ask me, so what have you been doing these last few months? You've been out for what, eight months? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And here I can show you exactly what I was working on. This is something I'd wanted to do for 25 years. I finally got a chance to do it. And you can find it on Amazon in the Kindle store. Here's the link. Like, oh, okay. It wasn't that you were failing at applying for work. It's that that was a background process and you were really putting more of your attention into other things. You can also do the same thing with like the volunteering at say a charity or a cause that you've always been interested in. So you know what? I'm taking a sabbatical for me. Sure, I'm still working or I'm still applying for work, but I'm also trying to do something that I've never had the time to do that it's important for me to do because it benefits the community or this group that needs it or you know, whomever. It shows a more rounded personality and it also makes sense for why you didn't immediately get hired. Was it because you couldn't? Because you didn't want to yet. Even that little bit of positive spin might help overcome people's automatic and incorrect negative assumptions about you do you think kind of knocking on the door the old-fashioned way uh to organizations or companies or do they frown upon that now because i'm aware you, you you're probably more up to date with regards to this that when you put your cv in or you apply 
for jobs online with an organization. They may be looking for keywords in mm-hmm. what you've said or on your CV. So would you recommend, in your opinion, to kind of go knocking on doors again and kind of show your face and, hi, this is who I am? And is that more beneficial? Well, sure. If, if you're a blue-collar worker, like let's say that you work in you know um, warehouse space or you're a, a, you know, an auto mechanic or whatnot, you probably could drop by a business, you know, a small business, and say, hey, you need an auto mechanic. I am an auto mechanic. Here's where I work. You got any openings? That, that might work for you. I've known some young people just out of high school and university that that's how they got a job. In the white collar world, not a chance. Right. I, I have seen a whole bunch of people. People will reach out to me and ask for uh, career advice or interviewing advice just because some of the stuff that I've done to help the community. And I'll tell them, no, if you, if you go knocking on the front door of, say, IBM or Google, they're going to tell you apply on our website. Right. That's all they do. Because what? Why should they? Why should they even hear you out when they have hundreds of thousands of job applicants to go through who have gone through their regimented process? The only way you're going to get around that is to have someone else inside the organization advocate on your behalf. And I've seen that happen a lot. Right. Director, VP, you know, MD goes down to HR and says, hey, Sally, make sure this, uh, this lady Jane gets an interview. I used to work with her at First National Bank. That's what gets it done. Essentially an executive override. You walking through the door, just uh, another person off the street, they're not going to give you the time of day. Right. So net, nepotism is the key. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm getting that impression as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, as I said, this is a highly competitive and kind of hostile environment. Right. right. The, the whole American dream is based on the myth that anyone can go from rags to riches. And that that's part of our, our assumed national identity. The reality is not really. The way you go from rags to riches is to actually be born rich and your rags are just your, you know, your last season's Versace business suit. You already have the insider knowledge and the cash and the poise and the training and all of the contacts needed to go make yourself in, you know, dot com sensation or whatever. For a normal working person, like I never would have gotten the jobs I had without the military. Yeah, my parents were teachers working in the poorest schools in the district. We didn't, there's no one rich in our family. There was no one that had connections or access or political power in our family. So I had to get my training through the army as well as through university and use the military to pay for university just to be minimally qualified to get through the door and get my resume looked at. And I leveraged every single job to jump to another weird one based on a momentary opportunity that I lucked into. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 amazing. It's just it it's a pity that, you know, that's the way things pretty much are now, that it's it is a bit of dog eat dog. And uh it seems to be or appears to be the bigger the organization, the more difficult, unless you have somebody on the inside. It is to get in the door, like you know. What then no. Let me, organize, let me interrupt with, one, yeah, go ahead, Carly, yeah, go with ahead. one thing here. I'm sorry about that. Okay. So this is exactly why I make it my personal mission. Anyone that's in my sphere of influence in an organization, I feel a moral and ethical obligation to help give them a boost up. I want to find ways, especially if it's one of my subordinates or one of my team members, I feel that it is important to help them become more competitive in the job market, to prepare them for whatever it is they're going to do next. 
whether that's to take over my position when I leave it, um, or whether it's to get another job in our organization, because you'd always want to retain your good talent, or if it's to get something on the outside. Someone should leave their period of knowing me better off when they leave than they were when we were first introduced. And I think this is a moral imperative for leaders at all stations. Your people are not expendable commodities. You don't use them up and throw them away and leave them to their own devices. No, you should be constantly developing and improving and mentoring them because they're people too. They are having a hell of a time trying to get through life and they are looking to someone to give them that boost up. So it darn well ought to be you. Do the morally correct thing and help your people for whatever comes next for them. Well, I mean, that, that's inspirational you've said that, and it's nice to hear you say that because is there any truth to the rumor that if you go for a job and you have certain qualifications and, and your qualifications may exceed that of your boss, the boss may prevent you from joining a company? I mean, is oh, yeah. that true? Is that, is that possibly Absolutely. true? Right. Yeah, I've heard a number of different versions uh, of the, the nickname for this. The, the most common one I've heard is that, you know, fives hire fours. The idea is that if you have on a scale of proficiency from zero being completely inept to 10 being the world's leading authority in something, um, the whole idea is if you're trying to hire talent, the smart thing to do, the, what's best for the company is to hire the most talented and productive team member you can get. So for me, I want to hire people that are smarter and more interesting than I am. So if I'm a five at a given skill and I can hire a seven, oh boy, you bet I'm going to do that. Because number one, I want to get the work done. Also, I want to learn from that person. They can teach me and make me more competitive, right. not to mention everyone else in my group. And also, they're going to make me look good if I just get out of their way. So that's the rational thing to do. However, let's remember, most people, especially in the U.S., most managers are never taught how to lead. Yeah. Right. What we do is we put people into a position that they are utterly unqualified for, give them no training, no mentoring, no useful feedback. And we make them because remember, right, they're desperate for the job for their for keeping a home, for keeping their health insurance, for feeding their family. They're terrified of anything that threatens their position. So a weak manager, what, what are they going to do? They're never going to hire someone that is more talented than they are for fear of being judged negatively and replaced. Five hires a seven, that seven is gonna take their job and they're gonna be right, homeless and left to sell matches behind a dumpster. Yeah. Now that's, an, that's a completely irrational position. However, it makes sense when people are terrified of the future, very um, uncertain of their own capability. They don't trust upper management to look out for them, which is kind of the norm in most organizations. So fives hire fours, fours hire threes, and so on, until you have an organization that is stable, but generally inept. Now, again, this is kind of a, it's a very rough theory. And I've heard a couple of uh, business school people talk about how they were actually taught it in class, but it is definitely a known risk. I have lost out on jobs where I have found during the interview that I was more qualified than the person interviewing me. Right. They got vis visibly frightened during the interview about the risk that they were taking on bringing me aboard. And I understand it. I try to set people at ease. You hire me to do a job. I'm taking money to work for you. It may be irritating, right? I mean, 
I've been doing this stuff for decades. I have led groups of up to 400 soldiers during you know, national disasters, but you're telling me I'm not qualified in your company to supervise one intern. Okay, right. that's horribly insulting, but I'm here for a job. I am here to take your money. If you're going to pay me and that's, how you, that's, the, the, that's the bargain we're going to strike, then I'm going to take the job and do the job. I'm not going to undermine you. I'm certainly not going to try and get rid of you or make you look bad because that's not what a loyal subordinate does. My job is to improve you as my boss to grow into the role so that you then earn your next promotion. And in gratitude for the support I've given you, you bring me up behind me, you and you give me your old job. Should, should then, if I'm a job seeker or mm-hmm. one of the listeners is a job seeker, should I tone down my CV then to make myself less? Qualified? Sometimes. Sometimes. Uh, Ageism is definitely a factor in the U.S., right? There is a misperception that someone over 50, I don't know how the hell people came up with this. The whole idea that, oh, well, you're old, so therefore you must not understand technology. It's like, really? I mean, you talk to someone that was, you know, using mainframes back in the 60s, uh, they probably know more about technology than you ever will. Yes, but the idea is that there's if you, for example, one of the things I was told constantly by career counselors was, if you don't make director by fifty, you're never going to make it in your life. You're done. You're you're just coasting to retirement, and that's a hell of a thing to tell someone. But I have been. I was actually told by a senior VP at IBM once that you need to get any anything that shows more than fifteen years of experience, just don't put it on your CV. Leave wow. it. Out. Don't give any. Yeah. Don't give anyone the excuse to associate you with advanced age. I thought this is horrifying. But you know, I every time I do a CV or a resume, I always put a different code number on it so I didn't know which version it was. And then I will go because like I I'm kind of a nerd, right? I track all my applications <laughs> and I look to see which resume version is the most successful. And what I found was the resume versions where I downplayed all of my early army experience and just focused on the last four corporate jobs got me far more interest. It got me past more applicant management systems than any other CV design. So how then, Kyle, so if you downplay it, right? So say the 15 years you were working as, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, like in the Air Force or in the Army or an airline pilot and so on. If you remove that, how do you replace it? How do you design your CV then to, because when you go to the interview, they're going to, you know, if you had 15 years or 20 years experience in a certain field, do you manipulate it to kind of explain that that's what you were doing, but you don't make it sound as qualified? Is that what you're trying to say? No, the idea is to to still play up your qualifications, which let's face it, most of the time, the difference between 15 and 20 years in a job is irrelevant. What I've found, at least for non-executives, is that most companies are looking for specific keywords based on functions, technologies, or activities. So if you can say, yes, I was doing this at this tier for five years or more, that's about as far as they look. They just want to know that you have it and that you had it at the appropriate level, uh, and then they want to talk about that. So you can just leave off older jobs. And quite honestly, most of the time with an American employer, they're not even going to think to ask. Which, again, this comes down to my argument from, from why are you here, which is that 
almost all people in the corporate space are never actually taught how to interview. The only way that they learn how to do it is by going in as a job candidate, watching how other people interview them, and then what they see in pop culture. And the trouble is that makes for a terrible interviewer, right? You don't know what to ask or how to interpret the answers. You generally waste everybody's time, might even make a fool out of yourself, um, which is why most interviews are just garbage. So when you're going into that, knowing that, if you've got any experience at all, what you're trying to do is have a narrative ready to go where, hey, I'm not only qualified for this role, I'm good at it, but also I'm a good person to have on your team because I can do many different things that will be to the advantage of you, the hiring manager who's interviewing me. And that's the conversation you want to get around to. The only, the only time I've ever seen an exception to that is the, the, the San Francisco style.com interview where they don't care about your experience. They just want to see you solve very narrow technical problems. Right. Like code dysfunction in, in this example dev environment. And personally, I think that's a fine supplement to an interview. But if that's the extent of your interview, you're going to wind up hiring some absolutely awful people because you're not paying attention to the whole person. Yeah, so they're pretty much just focused on can you do the job? We don't really care about anything else about you. Is that is that pretty much what they're, they're trying to get at? Correct. And right. let's face it, most most of the work that people do in their role, they're not spending 40 hours a week doing their primary function. They're going to meetings, they're having discussions, they're doing work outside of their primary function, whether it's everything from doing their annual performance review to working on a committee for, I don't know, the annual summer holiday. Um, you have to have someone that can not only perform a technical function, but can also get along with other people, cooperate in groups, solve problems, function in the environment without causing trouble. And that requires a lot more than just, well, show me that you can program this function. All right, let, let's move on then to you've been successful at obtaining employment. You're working with an organization that you've always dreamed of working for. And you meet the boss on the first day or one of the managers, and they say to you, my door is always open. <laughs> is the door always open or is it just, same again, just nonsense? They're just trying to say, oh, yeah, yeah it's just, you know, there's loads of people here. I'm going to sound like a kind of open. It's nice culture here. It's very friendly. What do you think or how do you manage that? Well, first, I put it to the test. You, you say you've got an open door policy, great. I'm going to bring you something completely innocuous that's not going to have any risk of blowback, and I'm going to see what you do with it. Right. Uh, I'm like essentially what? going to <laughs> yeah, performance test. Right. Because the thing is, the, the whole idea behind an open door policy is that, all right, anyone can come in and talk to me about anything. So, for example, if you've got a, a, a gripe with your boss, right, and I'm, you know, I, I supervise both of you, you could come in and badmouth your boss to me. Now, am I going to automatically act on that? Of course not, because you could very well be biased or, or wrong. But the idea, what I found, the better way to do it is to have a transparency policy. And this is something I learned as a young platoon leader. Um, there are times when orders must be obeyed immediately. Like, you know, when, when someone's health or safety depends on it, right? We should already have an understanding when an order is given, you're going to do it. And there should be no question at all that the, the worker's obedience is guaranteed. However, 
The only way to earn that trust that you're going to be obeyed is to be absolutely willing whenever you have the time to answer whatever questions your people have and to answer them honestly. They should be confident that you're not going to lie to them, that you are going to play fair with them, that you have their best interests in mind. So like one of the ways we would handle this um, after formation or you know, you're during some downtime, people back in the old days, you could smoke outside the building in the U.S. Army. Right. Um, it was a lot looser than it, than it is now. But the idea was the smoke deck, whatever it actually consisted of, was a place where people could informally congregate. And the same thing, like if you're waiting um, at, say, a rally point before you're going to you know, drive somewhere. The idea is anytime you've got some downtime, you as a leader should go out and sit with your soldiers. And I did the same thing with my civilian employees. When you got downtime, sit with them and just be open to conversation. And they should feel empowered to say, hey, boss, what's really going on with Project X? And you tell them. You tell them as much as you're allowed to. If there's something you're not allowed to tell them, let them know. There's a little bit more uh, due to operational secrecy. I'm not allowed to talk about it yet, but I will share it with you as soon as I can. If you've got people's trust, you don't need to have a formal open door policy. If right. anything, that, that's more, it's more performative and posturing than it is useful. Instead, you should have credibility with your people. And if you do, honestly, they, they will, people will follow you to the ends of the earth and put themselves in danger for you because you're the kind of leader they want to follow. God knows you're the kind of person I want to follow. All the best commanders I ever had, you could absolutely trust them to do the right thing by you. Did, oh, well, we're going to talk about it, obviously with horrible boss stories now. And obviously there's, there's some <laughs> really wonderful bosses out there and we're not pointing the finger at all of you, but give us a few or one or two horrible boss stories that you've had and, and be bluntly honest. So I've had a bunch. Right. I have an entire book called In Bob We Trust because I, I anonymize all of my characters in all of my columns <laughs> as Bob. And that way, the only people who could ever figure out who it really was were the people that were in the room at the time the incident happened. Right. So, and the thing is, a bad boss doesn't necessarily have to be one that's abusive. They could be incompetent. They could be clueless. Uh, there's a bunch of reasons why a boss can fail. And we should all understand this if we want to avoid making the same mistakes they do. So I've got a column coming out on Tuesday the 15th over on Business Reporter talking about um, a Bob that works in a large warehouse who was recently fired because she had terrible work habits. Now, her enthusiasm was, according to the people that worked with her, fantastic. The way she would, she would, she ran the night shift, and anytime there was a problem, she would bolt up out of her office like a superhero and go sprinting off onto the floor to go solve it. Which, wow, the enthusiasm, that passion, is really contagious. The trouble was, then there'd be another crisis. She would leave the first problem unfinished and go sprinting off to the next crisis. Right. And then on and on throughout the night. But she never empowered her, her um, supervisors and work leads to handle problems in her absence. Basically, the whole organization was paralyzed waiting for her to show up and solve whatever the issue of the day was, which meant the entire shift was constantly in a work stoppage mode all shift long. And they got nothing done. And they had a reputation for being worse than useless. That's a terrible boss, right? 
She yeah. was never, again, according to the stories I got from the person that shared it with me, she was never trying to hurt anyone. Quite the contrary, she wanted everything to work as well it could and threw herself headlong into every challenge. However, her method for doing it was awful and it cost them more productivity than they would have had if she just left things alone and let people figure out solutions to their own problems. Right. Now, what I found is that a lot of bosses they're in kind of a middle state, right? Between the well-intentioned and non-malicious and the completely evil. Because, and again, <laughs> this is something that is pretty common across the United States. We don't teach people how to lead. We, we put someone in a position because we believe they're capable of it. Usually someone that is completely faking their capability, you know, someone with some narcissistic tendencies, because, well, yeah, they look good in a suit and they sound confident, they must be leadership material drop them in the deep end and they screw everything up and they leave right before they're going to get the ax, leaving just an absolute disaster in their wake. Those kind of people are everywhere. They're extraordinarily corrosive to good order and discipline. They may or may not actually mean to do anything wrong. They're just not willing to admit that they're in over their head. Right. And then you've got the ones who are either abusive or insane. And this is, well, this is one of my favorite stories. It's actually, uh, it's actually in Imbob We Trust. I was working on building a dot-com down in Houston. This is back in 2000, back when, I mean, the, the dot-com boom was going like crazy. The bloom hadn't quite come off the rose yet. So the idea was, if you can make an internet company, then you're going to make billions of dollars without actually ever having turned a profit or having a working product. Because that's just what a dot-com means, right? It's free money. Yeah. And we were working for an unnamed energy company that decided they wanted to build a dot-com so they could take something to market, IPO it, and flip it, and then get rich off this internet thing that they didn't really understand. So it was an oil and gas services online reverse auction marketplace. And I could explain that, but I'm sober, so let's just skip it. The whole point was... <laughs> We're building this company whose main product is basically web services. And we actually built an entirely new facility and a brand new skyscraper. Um, and it was gorgeous. Like the, the, down, the main server room where all of the actual production gear was, was a beautiful fishbowl assembly. Big glassed in room with rows upon rows of Sun Microsystems, Unix servers, all in their intimidating. It looked like HAL 9000, but done up in Versace style. Now, of course, the actual internal server room where all my gear was, like the mail server and the file servers, the domain controller, was a floor away, and it was strictly utilitarian. That's where I spent all my time. I, I, wasn't, I worked with the people that were on the product side, but only because we were friends. Well, the night before, we were supposed to have our, essentially our global unveiling, our official launch on the internet. It was going to be a big media event. We're bringing in dignitaries and reporters a huge open house. We're going to have people tour the facility and see our cool dot-com style to show that we were, I mean, obviously if we have beanbags in the break room, we must be a real internet company. <laughs> I had one of the 12 corporate VPs come down to me in an absolute just frothing rage because I was in charge of internal IT. Uh, and I was a consultant, but I was building the IT department for this dot-com. And the whole idea was that once we built it and they launched, we consultants would turn over the entire company to them and they would just run their company fully operational. And this guy starts yelling at me, 
Where is it? Where is the, where's the internet monitoring station? Why isn't it operational? And I looked at him, I said, um, I have no idea what you're talking about. What are you asking me for? And so he described it to me. He was incensed. We built a specific room right up against the production data center specifically for the 24-7 internet monitoring crew. I said, okay, that's very interesting. What room? And he told us, that, oh, okay, the weird room that has a window into the server room that's painted all black and has nothing in it because no one knew what it was on the blueprint because it's unmarked and yeah, it's just an empty room. Right. He says, no, I insisted on that. It's the internet monitoring system. We are supposed to have a crew of engineers there 24 seven monitoring all global traffic on the internet and then reprogramming the internet to route our customers' traffic around broadcast storms. I said, huh, amazing. I think I, see, I, I can imagine what you're visualizing there. And it sounds really cool, but I live in reality where <laughs> that's not a thing. First up, we don't reprogram the internet. That's not possible. Uh, we are one tiny little company with some web servers. We also can't manage or even observe global internet traffic because that is orders of magnitude larger than you can, you can conceive of. Also, we don't have any staff for 24-7 operations. We don't even have a sock at this place. Um, and even if we had it, they couldn't do anything. Yeah. So why did you think this was... They insisted, I am a VP, I demand this capability, it had darn well better be there, fully operational before the reporters show up tomorrow. Huh. Okay. I'm a consultant, my job is to make sure the client is happy, I don't get a choice in the matter. Yes, sir, Roger, I will see, I will make <laughs> it happen. Or I will make something happen that you cannot tell isn't what you asked for. And that's what we did. Uh, we moved a bunch of uh, monitors and computers into the completely empty room. We hung some displays, put up some whiteboards, and then set up screensavers that were just like one was a, a wireframe photo of a Mercator projection with some lines drawn on it in MS Paint. Uh, threw some Christmas lights under the desk so we'd have a lot of blinky lights. Mm -hmm. And so that through the glass window to the production server room, you could see the, um, for whatever reason, the shaded window to the monitoring room. And it was constantly showing activity through what looked like incredibly busy computers. Right. And a big the whole thing was, in, was entirely props and, and set dressing. There was no one in it. It was a completely non-function. But we had the global unveiling. The reporters all came. Not a single one took the tour to go look at a server room because this was 2000, they'd seen server rooms before. They just wanted the open bar and the hors d'oeuvres and a statement <laughs> to put in their, their press release and then they left. And of course, as soon as this thing was done, we tore everything down and put it back in storage because it was a waste of time and money and resources. But this guy exemplified the kind of violently irrational boss that causes just untold havoc in the organization he he ruined people's or he would have destroyed morale on my team 
Had I not told him, look, this entire thing is a joke. We're just going to humor this guy. Make it look as cool as you can. And then don't tell anyone, right? Don't, don't, don't make fun of the guy. Don't make jokes about him. Just keep this to ourselves. We all know that the whole thing was, uh, was a lark. It's going to be a shared thing for us, for our culture. Yeah, and my team got that. And it was a running joke for the rest of the time that it was on the project. But uh, yeah, those kind of people are incredibly disruptive and destructive to good order and discipline. They cause people to quit, to become disillusioned, to even become disgruntled. Because what they want is inherently irrational and it serves no business purpose. It wastes people's time and threatens their job. And for what? So those are the kind of stories that I like to share as cautionary tales, right? You can have the best intentions. You can have the worst intentions. You can know what you're doing. You can be a complete fool. But the core characteristic of a bad boss is someone who is doing something that, that they feel is right or they feel that they're owed that causes their people to hate, resent, disrespect, or even want to oppose them. They're essentially what they're doing is they are pursuing their goals at the expense of the organization's people. And that's the mistake I advise everyone. And through all my cautionary tales, don't be Bob. <laughs> so how then, as the employee, how do you manage Bob? How do, how do you manage those difficult bosses? Is there a way? I mean, you mentioned their humor before. I mean, what's, what's the best technique? Or is there any techniques? Well, I mean, the best possible way is to get rid of them, Right. whether that's, you know, um, encouraging them to take a better job somewhere else or bringing documented evidence to internal affairs of their um, inappropriate conduct. But that's a risky thing, right? If you, if you, yeah. you know, the old joke goes, you only get one chance to kill the king. Uh, yeah. If that fails, the blowback is going to be horrible. Really, every bad boss has a different means of mitigation. Yeah, so a, a good example, and this is... This is a guy I worked for and absolutely despised. The, the man was a, an actual um, sadist. He liked to inflict harm and to torture his people, uh, metaphorically, right? Not literally. Yeah. But he, li he liked to, he loved to publicly humiliate people and watch them suffer in a group because it made him feel strong and powerful. And of course, it covered up for the fact that the guy didn't know what he was doing. He knew he was in over his head and that all of his subordinates knew more about their functions than he did. So one of the things that he implemented as a way to really mess with all of his direct reports was he started a mandatory monthly briefing where we had to compile massive amounts of statistics. And then we would, we would all get together and spend hours suffering in a, a blazing hot conference room, showing him our stats. And then he would pick someone and usually it was the, the same people, but he would, he would tell them, your stats are wrong. Your findings are wrong. Your slide is bad. I don't like your font. So there's one day we were sitting in the room doing our monthly brief and he comes across our, our employee training stats. And he looks at one of them and says, that stat is far too low. 28%, you should be above 90% at all times. I said, yes, sir. That's the class that we teach every December in the December training session, which we're planning to do, to do in December because that's when we do December training. So it'll be done in December. And he threw just, of course, I was obviously being a little bit more sarcastic than I should have been because we've been fighting for years and we, we already hated each other. But 
he ripped into me. You are terrible. You are a failure. You, you have to have that number. You are going to fix that before the end of the month. But without turning around, I said, okay, yes, sir, we'll do that. We'll have it fixed before the end of the month. You can count on it. And he ranted for a little while longer. And when he saw I wasn't getting a, re getting a reaction out of me, he basically gave up and, and moved on to the next slide. Well, the next slide, it was a member from the physical security department. And of course, he was utterly inept at PowerPoint. And his slides, even though he had reasonably good information, they just looked terrible. Well, Bob decided to rip into him. Everything about his slide, and of course, this, this poor guy, the physical security guy is just dying. He's humiliated. He's frustrated. He doesn't really understand why he's getting yelled at. And, but he, he knows he's suffering and everyone, everyone in the room is feeling pity for him. And he's losing face with his boss. And so after the meeting, as the physical security guy and I, we're, we're walking down the hallway. He's stressed out. He's red-faced. He says, oh, my God, that was a, you know, Bob really ripped into us. He said, yeah, yeah, he did, as expected. He goes, but you never batted an eye. You never got upset. You, you never, your face, you know, never changed expression. I'm like, yeah, I know, because it has nothing to do with anything that I did. Yeah. If I didn't have an error on the screen, Bob would invent one so that he can yell at me because that's his objective. He's there to humiliate us in front of one another for him to feel powerful. Yeah. The guy said, oh, well, so how did you know what he was going to yell at you about? I said, well, you ever heard of wabi-sabi? It's a Japanese term for deliberately including a flaw in a product or like a piece of artwork because it helps to communicate something about the artwork. I said, we do the same thing. We call it Bobby Sabi in this case. But the idea is we always include one noticeable flaw in whatever we present to him because we know he's going to choose something anyways. But this way, we have the flawed version of the slide and we've already made the corrected version of it so that after Bob has his tantrum in the staff meeting and demands a fix, that we just wait 24 hours and send him the correct version and he goes away happy. Yeah. He got to vent his spleen. He got to feel good about making us feel bad, but we didn't have to do any extra work. We actually build the real slide first, then build the flawed version from it as bait. So Bob has something to go off on. And of course, again, I'm talking to, I mean, he, I mean, his jaw dropped to the floor. So wait a minute. You're deliberately giving it. Yeah. Because this whole process doesn't mean anything. It's not required by regulations. These artificial records, this is just a paperwork drill. Yeah. So there's no consequence for being wrong other than you're going to get screamed at. So why not choose what you're going to get screamed at about to be something that, you know, that you can easily fix. And of course, the next month, the security guy did exactly that with his own slides and he got away without, you know, being red faced and teary eyed. You know, that is a way to deal with a bad boss based upon their unique psychopathology. And that's what you got to learn about your people. Some, some bobs can't be managed. They just can't. They're irrational. They're violent. They're delu delusional. But a lot of them can be. You just have to figure out what makes them tick, what they want, what they want from you, uh, whether or not they even respect you at all. And you can generally find a way to essentially minimize the amount of time they spend yelling at you so that you have a chance to actually do your job and eventually find a way to either get rid of them or escape yourself. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a good way of managing it. It's like, um, 
you're, it's like directing the conversation. It's like directing what what Bob will will uh, will place his his venom on you for the day. So no, it's, it's it's a good way. And is that in the books as well? Is it? Is that is that technique in the books, uh, Kyle? It is. Yes. And I mean, we, we we talk more about that. I mean, you're you're the author of geez, a lot of books. Um, I'm going to name them <laughs> if you don't mind. Um, there the way you hire security awareness people, a practical guide for leaders and recruiters. You've hiring forever war veterans, myths, misconceptions, misunderstandings, office cowboys, cautionary tales from the uh, cubicle frontier, lost illusions, making sense of dysfunctional company cultures. That one in particular is. Does that give you a kind of a greater sense? Is that is that coming from like a fictional side, or is that coming from like a technique side of of how you'd make sense of dysfunctional company cultures? So there, first off, I don't I don't do any fiction, right? Everything I write is true. It's just anonymized. Right. Lost Illusions is arguably my favorite book, and I just just released an updated version of it. So like everyone that had bought it previously got the new version automatically pushed down to their their Kindle device or whatever. Um, that one is a collection of different columns I've done, different essays that are then expanded on with technique and tactics and insight and observations. And also, and this is unique to this particular book, every single, um, every single entry within a chapter has its own challenge to the reader. Like now that you've learned this aspect of understanding this part of culture, go see if you can observe this in your own organization. And then try to make sense of it based upon these factors or characteristics. Yeah, I, I really like that one because it's meant to be a way to help open people's eyes to what's going on around them from an office culture standpoint. Because once you perceive it, you can never stop perceiving it. Right. You wind up understanding what's going on in your collective far better than you could before. And then you can, once you see it, you can start to actively influence it. Preferably for the better. And, and are all these books are they available on Amazon or is there another uh, platform that you can that listeners can buy them on? So they're all on Amazon. Uh, I chose I chose the option to where they were also available uh, through Apple's ebook store. Although to be honest, uh, I don't think anyone's ever bought one on there. Right. <laughs> um, there are actual audiobook versions of five of them that are out right now. You can get those on Amazon or audible.com. Uh, there's also physical copies of um, High T Leadership and In Bob We Trust, which you can either get from Amazon or you can just contact me directly because I have a whole bunch of boxes of those here uh, sitting here in my office. But yeah, the whole reason that I went with the Amazon route to begin with was to, to do the eBooks. Now, I don't have an actual publisher, never have. Um, I'd love to get one. That would be awesome. But this is entirely a shoestring operation that I do essentially for free. I've made these things as cheap as I could possibly make them because I would rather get them in someone's hands so they can be entertained and maybe also learn something that gives them a competitive advantage. That's why I made the first one. Why Are You Here? Commercial's Guide to IT Interviewing was a love letter from me to my friends about how to find better talent as a hiring manager and how to get a better job as an individual. And the best feedback I ever got from that wasn't the, the dollar or two that I made from the sale. It was when someone that read the book came back to me and said, hey, I used your techniques in my last interview and I got a better job that has improved my quality of life and has made life better for my family. Like, yes, 
That's what it's all about. <laughs> Give back to the community. Try to make things better for everyone else, right? Make the world a little bit better than it was when you showed up. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, that, that, that's, that's great advice. I mean, where else then can listeners get in touch with you? I mean, on social media. I mean, you mentioned before you write for Business Reporter. Is that .co.uk? Correct, yeah. Business-reporter.co.uk. I have a weekly column there. Um, and I have, ooh, boy, since 2012, I think I'm up to 470 articles written oh, for that wow. company, uh, all for free, right? right? They give me a platform as the resident American blogger, and I put my content out there because I hope it's going to help people. Uh, I also, the first of the month, I do a security awareness column for the European Information Security site at teiss.co.uk. And I will occasionally uh, ghostwrite for, for other companies, um, but those are never advertised. You're never going to find my name associated with them. Most of what I write is designed to reach primarily a white collar or technical audience, right. um, but it varies, right? The, it's all a matter of what I happen to notice going on in the world, what advice I can give, what funny stories I can tell. And I do try to be as approachable and as amusing as possible because you're more likely to remember the story and to share it with others if I can make you laugh. Yes. And can listeners then get in touch with you? I mean, are you on Instagram? I know you mentioned Twitter earlier on there, but are you on Facebook and uh, LinkedIn if they need to get in touch? Yeah, I still have a Facebook presence, a personal Facebook page, but I only use it to cross post my articles. Uh, I don't use it for any other reason. So if you were to try and contact me there, I probably wouldn't notice for a week, right. <laughs> if at all. Um, I cross post everything on LinkedIn. If you're going to reach out to me, DM me there on LinkedIn, because that's you know, a much more uh, conservative and conventional business-related site. Twitter is a lot more free. Twitter is a dumpster fire of a social media engine, but it's also fascinating because the information security community on Twitter is amazing. I have met some of the most awesome people there just be warned it, it's an open sewer right. so yeah i'd say linkedin first twitter second and facebook a distant third honestly you'd be better off sending me a postal note or a postcard <laughs> than try to hit me on facebook and you also do call you do uh, speaking events as well is it for organizations or i do yeah i do uh, everything from in person to webinars to panel discussions and I mean, you'd let me know what it is you want me to talk about. I love to work with audiences and find a way to share a story that might inspire or encourage someone to, you know, make things better for themselves and for the people they work with. Well, I want to thank uh, Kyle Hubert for an extraordinarily informative uh, chat today on the Wellbeing Career World podcast. As Kyle has mentioned, we'll put all the links so you can get in touch with him. And yeah, just uh, amazing chat with you today, Kyle. And, and thanks so much for taking the time for chatting with me today. Oh, thank you, David. I've really enjoyed it. And I love your podcast. Thank you.